All right, welcome to episode 16 of the Mindful Hunter podcast. I'm your host as always, Jay Nickel. This week, we are going to do an extensive debrief, breakdown, whatever you want to call it, of all the gear that I took on my solo backcountry mountain goat hunt. On that note, I just posted that video today and the response has been overwhelming to say the least. I can't thank you guys enough for the feedback, the messages, the likes on YouTube, all of it. I really pour my heart and soul into these films and into the effort that it requires to go on these adventures to just even have the opportunity to take the films. And I'm not going to lie, I would do it regardless because it's something that I enjoy doing with my time. But to get the type of feedback that I do get from you guys, it just makes it even that much more enjoyable. So thank you so much. If you haven't seen the film and you're interested in seeing the film, just go to my YouTube, just Google Mindful Hunter. Uh, it is called Maximum Effort, a solo goat hunting story. Typically, I don't name my films because I'm more of a vlog content creator than like a filmmaker. At least that's how I see myself. I'm not like a Donnie Vincent or somebody like that. I'm more of like just a YouTuber who likes to hunt, or at least that's how I see myself. However, when I was preparing for this, and then once I got there, I realized there was something special about this film, and I wanted, I wanted that to come across in the title. I'm a huge Deadpool fan. I love the whole maximum effort thing. And that just kept going through my mind again and again and again. Like that hunt to me was the pinnacle of maximum effort. Like I've said before, there are different aspects of other hunts that are far more challenging, but no hunt I have ever been on has been as singularly physically grueling as this hunt. And it was just maximum effort all day, every day. So that's what I called it. I'm really proud with how it turned out. Everybody who's engaged with the film seems to really enjoy it. So again, just thank you. I'm not going to go on and on and on about it, but I appreciate it. One last note I want to make on this because I've had more comments on the cinematography elements of this film than any of my other films. I really wanted to level up my game. I wanted it to be something enjoyable just to watch, just for the beauty of it. And I really focused on that in the intro. Here's the funny part. I thought I nuked my Sony a7 III, like my big mirrorless camera on day two. All of the footage you see in the film, except for like 15 seconds of talking head footage at, at, in one section, is all shot on two GoPro Hero 9s. All right, so I want you to listen to that and I want you to think about it for a second. It's a beautiful film. It's not Hollywood quality, but it's beautiful. For like a DIY guy, I'm very proud with the quality of the production. And I did it with two $400 cameras and you could have done it with one. It's not like I ever had them both turned on at the same time. It just would have been a bit more of a pain in the ass. So if you are hesitating in any way, shape or form about getting into this or filming your own hunts, like just go buy a GoPro and start doing it because you don't need big fancy gear. All that being said, I wish I had had my Sony because there was I could have I could have taken it up an even further notch had I had access to that camera. Here's the truth of the matter. This is a little embarrassing. On the morning of day two, I went to turn on my camera and the screen just went blank. It flashed and went blank. I did it three times in a row. 
and I got the same response all three times. And I thought to myself, I bet there's a moisture sensor in this camera and it's, and, and it's sensing moisture. It doesn't want to turn on. So I put it back in the padded bag that I have and I just tucked it away for the rest of the trip. Got to the hotel after the trip, took it out of the bag, dried it out overnight, turned it back on and the exact same thing happened. Well, there is a button that switches the view from the electronic screen, the LCD screen on the back of the camera to the viewfinder where you got to like put your eye in. And I noticed when I had it on and the screen was black, there was still a red light blinking. Like it was seeing information. And I'm like, that's weird. And then because I was sitting down the hotel, I could kind of see into the viewfinder and I could see an image. And I'm like, what? And I picked the camera up and I'm looking and the camera's working perfectly fine. It had worked perfectly fine the whole time, but I was so, I had accidentally hit the button to flip it. And I know that button is there. I use that button all the time, but I think it was like my paranoia that the camera was going to get ruined at the first sign that I thought it was going down. It was like, nope, I'm not messing with this. You're just going back in the bag. And I laughed. I, I lugged around this camera and the lens and the case, like this whole hunt. And I never even took it out because I thought it was broken. And it was just that it was switched to the wrong setting. So maybe there's two lessons. Lesson number one, all you need is a GoPro to be a filmmaker. Lesson number two, learn how to use your damn camera. So anyways, I thought that was pretty funny. Now, before I get any further, as always, thank you for likes, comments, shares, subscribes. If you need anything from me, if you want to contact me, engage with the platform in any way, shape, or form, email j at mindfulhunter.com, Instagram, mindful underscore hunter, YouTube, mindful hunter. Now, with that out of the way, apologize for the kind of spotty podcast uploads recently. I missed the week when I was gone goat hunting. I didn't really have much of a choice about that. I also missed last week. Basically, I got home. My company secured a major contract. I was busy as hell. And I was also editing the first podcast that was two hours long of the goat hunt. And when that was done, I had to edit the hour long film and I just got overworked and I just didn't have any time. I'm really trying to stick to once a week, even when I'm crazy busy. So I think from now on, if I'm having a crazy busy week, I just might hop on and do like a quick gear review, even if it's just like 20, 30 minutes for my own peace of mind, I've made a commitment to do this every week. And I'm really impressed at how fast the audience is growing. And I think part of that is because of the predictability and the regularity of the podcast. So you guys kind of make a commitment with me or you offer to give me something when you listen on a regular basis. You're telling me that what I'm making is worth your time. I respect your time. So if you're going to make that relationship with me, then I'm going to make that same kind of promise to you that because you're willing to give me your time, I'm going to give you as good a content as I can possibly make on as regular a basis as I can possibly commit to. I was going to skip all the intro parts like the gear reviews and uh, my training schedule and diet because there's so much to talk about today. I didn't want to run out of time and I got thinking about it and I was like the regular parts of this podcast is what make it my podcast. So I'm going to keep those in recognizing I may only get through half the gear review today. Uh, there's a lot of gear that I took. I have a lot of feedback on some of it and I don't want to rush it. So here's the deal. I'm just kind of setting a clock. When I hit an hour, I'm just going to stop and I'll record the rest of it for next week. So if you didn't hear about a particular piece of gear, 
trust me, I'm going to hit it off next week. What I've done, you can hear the paper or see the paper, depending on how you're ingesting this content. I have printed out my entire gear list and I have a bunch of notes in my phone that I took while on the trip. And I am essentially just going to go through this entire list from top to bottom and tell you my particular feedback on all the gear. And we'll get into that in a minute. But first, let's get into the regular parts of the podcast. So first up, training update. So let's still do a little bit of debrief on my physical performance on the hunt. I'm going to give myself like a, a B plus bordering on an A minus. I definitely took a hit in performance due to the increased size from the bodybuilding goals, but I was still able to execute every day, all day, maybe just not at as quite a higher performance as I would have appreciated. Just keep that in mind because I'm making some adjustments to my training going forward. However, overall, I will say I was very happy with, with how I performed given the circumstances. I, I've, I feel like I've talked about this so much now between the podcast and Instagram posts and, and the film, but like the depth of the snow and the pure like grit required to just hump through that breaking trail, every step you took, you broke trail. It was, it was, I was not fully prepared for that. I've done a shitload of snowshoeing, but not in snow like that and not wearing an 81 pound pack. And that was the final number. You will hear me on the, on the podcast and the, and the film reference a 70 pound pack. I forgot about my rifle. So I weighed the pack before I left the hotel and it was 70 pounds. And then I strapped a nine, sorry, it was 72 pounds. And then I strapped a nine pound rifle to my pack. So I was carrying an 81 pound pack. I'm 260 pounds, 340 pounds in total. So getting into my training split, given the feedback from the trip, I'm going to do things slightly differently going forward. You will remember before the trip, I said, I really only need to focus hardcore on my cardio for like a month to six weeks before a trip and I'm good to go. I don't think that's the case when you weigh 260. When I was 210 and 220, that was the case. I could do a little bit of hiking here and there throughout the year. And then four to six weeks before a big hunt, I could drop the hammer, train like a savage, and I'd be good to go for the hunt. I think... When I'm this size, I just, my cardio capacity just doesn't recover as quickly. So moving forward, I've changed my split. I'm going to a four day lifting routine every week, two days backpack cardio every week and one rest day. So here's how it goes. Thursday and Friday, I hike with a 50 pound pack, four miles, hour and a half each day. Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, I lift. Wednesday's a day off, repeat. The four workout days are legs, back, chest and shoulders, arms. I've done it for two, two weeks, maybe almost three weeks now since I got back from my goat hunt, and I'm loving it. Um, I'm down to 256 pounds this morning. The lowest I got after the hunt was 252. I've put back on four pounds. We're going to get into that in a minute. I feel great. My cardio has been great. My cardio is better now than it was on the hunt. It was so funny doing that first day of backpack cardio after the hunt, carrying the 80 pound pack, throwing that 50 pounder on. I felt like I could do like backflips and uh, cartwheels because it was so light compared to the 81 pound pack I've been carrying for the week previous. 
So this is another element I want to make. When you come home from a hunt, carry that momentum with you. That was the only thought I had when I got back into training. I was like, I am in amazing shape right now from hiking every day in that snow. I don't want to lose this and have to get it back. So I immediately started training like a savage when I got home. I had a renewed kind of vigor for the gym. Backpack cardio was super fun. I still have a sheep hunt coming up in a few months. I've got bear coming up in two months. So like lots of near-term goals to keep me motivated as far as my training goes. So my wife just brought up a really good point. I used to try and have the house uber quiet while I was recording these podcasts, but it's kind of inconvenient for her because I'm doing them in the middle of business days. So listen, from now on, you might hear somebody walking around downstairs or my wife typing on a keyboard or my dog doing something stupid. And that's just the way it is because I'm just a regular dude trying to do this in the midst of my family and my job and everything else. And I don't have some fancy studio or place where I can go to do this. So anyways, just a side note, that's what you can hear if you can hear anything. Okay, back to the training. So I'm about to go on a big bulk push. Now, this might seem funny because I'm already 256 and I was just 265 and you're like, what are you doing? Why do you need to get bigger? I'm not big enough yet for this bodybuilding show and I still got some ground to cover. So for the next three, three and a half months, I'm going on a bulking blast. So everything is going up. Food is going up. Sups are going up. Training is going up. I would like, I mean, secretly, I, I want to hit 280. I don't know if that's possible. 275, I would accept. That would be 10 pounds over the last weight that I hit. But the, when I started the podcast, I was kind of like in the middle of a, of a cycle. And so it was hard for me to really give context as to the kind of what the changes were producing and how, where I was at. So it was a bit confusing. This time we're going to start from scratch. Okay. So a 256 right now, nothing has really gone up so far. Subs haven't gone up. The extra four pounds I gained since I got home is just for me eating regularly and, and eating enough calories that I, I'm not losing weight on a daily basis. So 256 is our starting point. Starting next week, everything's going to start going up incrementally, food, sups, all of it. And so I'll be able to track week by week um, how the weight goes and what my dietary changes are. Right now, I'm holding steady at like, you know, uh, five, six meals a day, depending on the day. If I can only get in five, I just make them slightly bigger. An average meal has 240 grams of a protein source, 200 grams of a carb source, and then normally 10 grams of fats. Um, everything else is like pretty stable across the board. Lots of chicken, steak, elk, bear, uh, white rice, some brown rice pasta is going to go into my diet soon. Like real stand, like eggs, egg whites, real standard bodybuilder foods. The difference being, I'm not going to go to a five day lifting schedule. I'm going to keep it at a four day and I'm going to keep in this two days of cardio every single week. So, um, I'll just, I'll keep you updated on how everything progresses. And I'm, I'm pretty excited because I'm starting to get to the point now where I feel like, and I know it's, this might sound stupid to people, but I'm finally feel like I'm getting past the point of like average. And I feel like I'm getting into that. Like elite would be a strong word, 
But you know that upper five to 10% of what most human beings kind of do as far as like weightlifting and, and bodybuilding goes. And that's when I start to get excited. It was the same thing with his goat hunt. Like, yeah, I get excited about hunting blacktail and squamish, but it's like, that's a pretty run of the mill thing to do. What really gets me excited and motivated is knowing that I'm doing something that not a lot of other people are necessarily capable of for a variety of reasons. Um, I'm also recognize I'm very fortunate to get to do the things that I do. And I'm very grateful for those opportunities. All right. That's training and diet out of the way. We're not going to do the mini gear review section this week, simply because we're talking almost exclusively about gear this week. And there's going to be lots of, of elements to talk about. Now, as far as creator of the week goes, I want um, everyone to go check out on Instagram. His, his handle is Talus Creative, T-A-L-U-S-C-R-E-A-T-I-V-E, Talus Creative. His name's Connor Gabbett. He's a Canadian. He's from British Columbia. He's primarily a photographer. I'm sure you've probably seen his images without knowing you've seen his images. Shoots for Sitka and Hilleberg and a bunch of brands. He was actually in Stewart hunting goats the same week I was in Stewart hunting goats. We don't really know each other and we've never met, but I follow him on Instagram. His photography is next level. Totally the type of stuff I aspire to. I love seeing these guys who are so much better than I am because... That's what I'm trying to, that's what I'm trying to achieve. And I, I get inspired by other people's greatness. I don't get defeated by it or overwhelmed by it. I really, I seek out people who are better than me so that I can be reminded how much I still need to progress. I mean, any of the cinematography or any of the edits and transitions that you see in this goat hunting video, Stephen Drake deserves the credit. I started watching his hunting vlogs and I was like, holy shit, man. For like a 15 minute hunting vlog, this thing is amazing. Like it's just a beautiful piece of art. I'm like, I'm being lazy. It's not a matter of skill. It's not a matter of ability. It's lazy. My shit is lazy. When I see other people who like level up to that degree, it I, I have no choice but to recognize how much I need to level up. So anyways, Connor Gabbett, Instagram, Talus Creative, super talented guy. Just wanted to pass that along in case you don't follow him. Um, I highly recommend giving him a follow. Lots of great content. One small note I want to make because I believe in transparency and integrity with everybody who listens to this. Sitka gave me some gear for this hunt. I'm not sponsored by Sitka. Sitka doesn't pay me money. They have no rights to my opinion or editorial input on the content that I make. So I don't want you to think that I promised to say good things about them. If they gave me gear, um, a guy at the company knew about the hunt. I'd been in contact with him to ask some kind of gear advice. He thought it was a really cool kind of adventure and wanted to help out. And he was like, do you need some stuff? And I was like, yeah, well, I mean, yeah, gear's expensive. Sure. I need some stuff. And he was good enough to send me some gear. So I just wanted to be transparent about that. I'm still going to give it an honest uh, review, but some of the stuff that I wore in this hunt, there's lots of this stuff, I Sitka stuff I bought myself, but some of this stuff um, was provided by them. So I just wanted to put that out there so that all you guys would, would know that. I don't want to seem like I'm pulling anything over, pulling the wool over anybody's eyes. 
All right, here we go. The full gear breakdown for 2021 winter mountain goat hunt solo. First up is the pack and the rain cover. So I use a Kafaru fulcrum bag with a tactical frame. Now, would I use that? Would I buy that frame again? It's hard to say. When I initially bought it, I actually called Aaron and kind of told him what I'm into, what I do. He said, get the tactical, especially living in BC. You could be carrying out really heavy loads. You're going to be carrying a lot of camera gear and the tactical is stronger. You save about a pound when you drop down to the duplex light. I like having the extra stability. So I guess the simple answer is yes, I would buy the tactical again, but I would like to note that I think for 90% of people's needs, I think the duplex is probably the better choice because it's a little bit lighter. If you're super hardcore and you just want kind of the tank of frames, get the tactical. It is definitely stronger. Now the bag, the fulcrum. In my opinion, this is the perfect bag. So for starters, the bag performed flawlessly. The only thing that was kind of annoying is that the fabric would get wet and then freeze and it was hard to unzip sometimes, but there's, that's not really a flaw in the bag per se. I mean, there's nothing you can do about that. That's more of a comment on the environmental conditions than anything else. The bag was performed flawlessly. Um, in my opinion, that really is the perfect bag. It, with the guide lid, I'm up somewhere around 9,200 cubic inches in total. The main cylinder compartment is gigantic. I can fit so much stuff in there. The two wing pockets essentially fit my optic system perfectly, plus a couple extra things. So I can fit my tripod in one and my spotting scope in the other. In my spotting scope pocket, I can also fit my coffee mug. And in my tripod pocket, I can also fit a Nalgene and a couple of fuel canisters. Now, the reason I like the fulcrum so much is that once you get wherever you're going and you're in day hunting mode, you empty all your gear out of the main cylinder compartment, collapse that, strap it down, fold the two wing pockets across the front, strap those down, and you just hunt out of the lid and those two pockets. And you can actually use the top of the cylinder compartment because you strapped it down with a strap. And that's more than I ever need for day hunting. It stays tight. It stays compact. Um, in my opinion, it's it's perfect. I always see Aaron recommending the Hoodlum more than any other pack. I don't think he actually likes the Fulcrum. Um, I don't know why. But for me, it's the perfect pack. Wouldn't change anything on it. I would take it again 10 out of 10 times. Now, I bought a, a rain cover for the pack. I highly recommend it for this hunt. The only thing that I might have done differently is bring a sill tarp instead because then I could have used it for other things as well, like some shelter when glassing and stuff like that. And for my sheep hunt, I think that's what I'm going to do differently. I'm going to bring a little mini tarp that I can use to drape over stuff to keep it dry or hang for shelter when I need to. Um, but the, the rain cover I brought, I bought from outdoorsman's like four or five years ago. It's pretty typical, but it worked great because in something like the solo, the tent I used, you don't have room even in the vestibule for your backpack. So what I did was, uh, just left it outside every night covered in the, in the rain protector. It would get covered in snow. I'd wake up, I'd shake off the rain, the rain cover and the backpack was, was fine underneath. So Super useful, 
There was no flaws to that in any way, shape, or form, but I may substitute a tarp next time. Although not quite as durable, it's more functional. All right, let's look at the, the sleep system as a whole. So this is shelter in the whole nine yards. So I used a Hilleberg Solo, an Exped Hyperlite Down Mat Winter Long Wide, a Kafaru Zero Degree Slick Bag, a Sea to Summit Pillow, and I also had three quarters of a Thermarest Z-Lite pad. You know, those little accordion foam pads? I took three quarters of one of those so that I could use it for a seat, or if I had the opportunity to take a shot, I could lie prone in the snow on that. So it was in my backpack every day when I went out day hunting, and when I came back to the tent, I would slide it back on under the pad. As a whole, the sleep system and shelter, perfect. Had zero problems. Um, I had originally been trying to decide between the Solo and the Acto. The primary difference being the Solo has a little bit more headroom, but it's also freestanding. Now, it also weighs about a pound and a half more, which is a pretty severe penalty when it's like three and a half pounds for the Acto and five pounds for the Solo. I think it's like, it's three and three quarters and five and a half, but whatever, close enough. I am super glad that I went with the Solo. The extra headroom was completely useful. I loved it. It was great. It is not a palace in there by any stretch of the imagination. Your shoulders are kind of always brushing up against the wall. And what I learned was, okay, there's two main door systems on the Solo. There's like the vestibule door system to outside, and then there's the inner tent door system. I had been shutting everything when going to sleep, and I'd wake up at like one o'clock in the morning, and it'd be kind of stuffy and not a lot of fresh air. And I realized... At first, I just left one of the doors open. And then once I got used to it, I actually left both the internal doors open and I just rolled them right up and out of the way. It made the tent feel better. I had better air circulation. The sleep system itself was so warm, I was never cold at night. So that would be one thing I'd keep in mind. Um, If you don't need the doors closed, look at keeping them open because the ventilation was way better. One pro tip I will pass on that was passed on to me is a blue kitchen sponge. It doesn't have to be blue, but in my mind, it's a little blue sponge. I took this kitchen sponge and used it to wipe the condensation off the inside of the tent, usually like maybe once during the night and once in the morning. Um, first thing when I woke up, I would kind of just do around my head and then sit up. And you would literally get like four or five spongefuls. Now, you have to understand, people are going to start shitting all over this tent and be like, oh, I shouldn't have that much condensation. You don't understand the moisture levels. It's 90% relative humidity, puking snow every day, like eight to 10 inches. Like it's, it's like a rainforest in the middle of a blizzard. Like you can't even comprehend how wet everything always is. So this is not a fault of the tent. This is due solely to environmental conditions. You just got to live with it. But when you wake up and use this blue sponge to kind of wipe the moisture off, you get four or five spongefuls, you know, squeeze it out into the snow. 
it's great. Then when you bump against the tent, it doesn't rain down on your sleeping bag and all the rest. It is arguably one of the more valuable pieces of gear that I brought. Other than that condensation issue though, like there is part of me that if I do that same hunt again next year, I want to experiment with the Nalo 2. It weighs the exact same as the Solo. It's not freestanding, but it's significantly larger. See, the thing with the Acto, it wasn't freestanding and it was smaller. So I was like taking two hits in order to go with the Acto. But the Nalo is bigger than the Solo and weighs the same as the Solo. And now that I've been in there, I took the Solo because I wanted as small of a footprint as possible. And now that I kind of have the lay of the land, I think you could get away with the Nalo in there. And I think you'd be cozier because you have a little bit more room. That said, if you're looking for like a hardcore winter tent and you're only going to get one, I would go with the Solo because there's never going to be a situation in which you can't use the Solo, but there are situations in which you can't use the Nalo. So the Nalo would be a nice second choice, but it would never be my first choice. And this is also just because I like to review gear for the channel. And I feel like if I was to go on a similar hunt, it gives me a, a really cool opportunity to swap out some gear. And I can tell because the conditions would be identical, which gear fares better. However, love the Solo, did great. The Hyperlight down mat from Xped blew my mind. It's not light. I don't remember exactly what it weighs. Pound and a half, maybe. Um, maybe a little bit more. Anyways, it's a sleeping pad mat that has down inside it. And when all the air is out of it and you roll it up, you can feel it. It's actually fluffy. Um, and it's to increase the R value of the pad. I also don't know what that is off the top of my head. It's high though, like maybe six or seven, like it's crazy. Um, super warm, super durable, comes with an ultralight pump sack. And I have another pump sack from, um, is it, yeah, it's Big Agnes because I've got their Q-Core um, sleeping pad and it has a pump sack, but it's, it's almost made out of like a, like a vinyl. And I think it weighs like a quarter of a pound or half a pound. And the one from Xped is like this really super fine material and it weighs two ounces. Essentially it is a bag that you attach to your sleeping pad. And when you go to blow up your sleeping pad, you just open the bag and roll the top closed. It captures a bunch of air and you squeeze it into the pad. It is critical that you don't get moisture inside of a winter pad, especially one that has down in it. Any pad is going to have some type of like reflective material or baffling that's going to help increase its insulative properties. Getting moisture inside there negates those insulative properties. So you, so using a pump sack fills the pad with air, doesn't get moisture in there. Plus it only takes like four or five squeezes to put it in there. You're not seeing stars afterwards. It blew my mind how far I, I almost left it at home. I was like, this thing is a gimmick. It's stupid. I'm going to blow up my pad. Like a man blows up a pad. And then I used it at home and I was like, okay, you're a moron. This thing is amazing. Um, so again, hyper light winter down mat from Xped. Couldn't recommend it enough. 
I don't have extensive deep country pad experience, so I'm not going to say it's better than all the rest because I don't know. But I did a ton of research and I feel I didn't see another one that I would want to take more than this one. Also, I'm six feet, one inch tall, 260 pounds, pretty broad. I got the long wide, but I got the mummy shaped one. I think they also have a big rect. Yes, they do have a big rectangle one. That's why this one is called the hyper light down mat. They have another down mat long wide. That's a big rectangle. You don't need the big rectangle. You save, it's like somewhere between a quarter and a half a pound by getting this one because it's body shaped. So it's tapered down at your feet. Um, I'm a side sleeper. You can side sleep on this pad. No problem. It didn't squeak. It didn't crinkle. It never deflated. I blew it, you know, I stayed in two different camp spots. First one for one night, the second one for four nights. I blew up the pad on the first night, never touched it again for all four nights. Some pads, especially with like shifting temperatures, you, they don't leak, but it's like every now and then you just got to put a little bit of extra air in them. I didn't have to do anything like that with this pad. Um, highly recommend it. Kafaru zero degree slick bag. What a champ this thing is. So I've already alluded to the moisture levels on this hunt as being just out of control. So the question is, well, how do you dry yourself? And the answer is your sleeping bag. Um, even getting a fire started in this shit is next to impossible. You would have to take a, a significant walk up a side hill to get some kind of wood that either wasn't frozen solid or drenched to the core. I had one fire and it was like, it was pretty weak sauce. I mean, I got a fire going. I can take pride in that, but it's not something I'm particularly, you know, proud of or sent pictures to my mom. It was not a roaring blaze by any stretch of the imagination. So the only option you have is to dry yourself out in your sleeping pad bag. And you, so the only option left is drying yourself out in your sleeping bag. You cannot do that in a down sleeping bag, especially not in these conditions. Now I do do that on elk hunts in my down quilt, but I'm also not in high humidity areas and I usually have the opportunity to hang out my down bag to dry out, you know, a couple of times a week so that any accumulated moisture is going to lose or just sitting in my tent for the day while I'm out hunting, the sun beating down on the shelter will heat it up inside and that in turn will dry out the quilt. None of those things were happening on this. And let me tell you, this is no word of a lie. So I would, let's say I get back to the tent at six o'clock. And I'd be soaking wet because I just hiked straight two to three hours in a blizzard from wherever it was I'd been glassing. So we'll get into all the gear I'm wearing, but I'm wearing basically long johns and rain pants on the bottom and then three layers, a thin base layer, Kelvin active jacket and a raincoat on top. So the base layer and the Kelvin active jacket are soaked. Like you could wring them out. Long johns are soaked. You could wring those out. Socks are soaked because I took a couple booters in the creek on day two and my boots just never dried out. Um, I would literally take off all the rain gear. I would get in the sleeping bag. I would zip it up and I would close the tent. And I would just lay down and I would just take a break. And I'd either listen to a podcast or an audio book. I'd eat a snack. I wouldn't have dinner yet. I can get into that later maybe, but I tried to hold dinner off 
until later in the evening because I wanted to break up my nights. This is not like I'm going to go to sleep for 12 hours every night. I would have a bit of snack, listen to an, a podcast or an audiobook, and I would try and stay wrapped up in the sleeping bag for at least two hours. By the end of two hours, if I was just like moderately wet, I would basically be dry, not bone dry, but like dry enough that I was comfortable. And then I would get up and I would do my thing, clean up camp a little bit, get dinner ready, tidy the tent, that type of shit before getting back into bed. Then when I got back into bed, I would close the sleeping bag again and just like go to bed in, in both tops. And then around one o'clock in the morning, I would wake up and I would literally be bone dry like socks are bone dry, long johns, base layer, Kelvin active jacket, like crunchy dry. It's insane how efficient your body is at expelling moisture. So the heat from your body pushes the vapor out of the sleeping bag. It evaporates into your tent, which also didn't help the condensation situation. At that point, I would wake up and remove my Kelvin active jacket. It's now bone dry, ready for the next day. I would remove my socks, now bone dry, ready for the next day. I would go back to sleep in my long johns and my top base layer. Super comfy, lots of room in the sleeping bag, slept great. Wake up in the morning, put your dry shit back on. I don't know how detailed I'm going to get in this, but I, I would also try and leave the Kelvin active jacket off as long as I could the next day, just because it would eventually get moist with sweat um, because it was so, so physically kind of grueling of a hunt. But um, at least I was waking up to dry socks, dry clothes, ready to go. It made the day so much more bearable. None of that would have been possible without a high-end synthetic bag. Now, there are some things that make the Kefaru Slick Bag particularly attractive. So Kefaru uses Climashield Apex insulation, which like I mentioned, is a constant filament insulation. So with a down bag, you need to sew in baffles to keep it separated. Otherwise, all the feathers would just fall to the bottom of the bag. Now, when you sew through a bag, you are essentially creating a multitude of pinholes in the bag. Air can escape. It's, it, it reduces the insulative qualities of the bag. There's a lot of reasons why you don't want to sew a sleeping bag. When you deal with a constant filament insulation like Climashield Apex, that's no longer a concern because it's kind of, by its very nature, it stays distributed. So you fill the bag with it and it you don't need to keep it baffled in order to keep it evenly distributed within the bag. Um, there are other companies that use similar, I'm not going to say like it's the only synthetic sleeping bag and buy this one, the rest are shit, not by any stretch of the imagination. This one weighs 4.12 pounds. It's good to zero degrees Fahrenheit. And I'd say that's probably 10 degrees off. You're not going to sleep in it in a pair of boxers in zero degrees, put it that way. When you start getting close to that zero degrees, you start needing to add things to your sleep system to maintain a certain comfort level. So I believe in a modular sleep system. So for starters, layer zero is naked in the bag. Layer one is long johns and a base layer in the bag. Layer two is the Kelvin active jacket plus the long johns and base layer in the bag. Layer three would be adding either puffy pants or a puffy jacket or both. And 
I have just basically described a system that would easily cover a range of like 20 to 25 degrees and extend the rating of your sleeping bag by a good 15 degrees. So if it's rated at zero and you bring puffy pants and a puffy jacket, you're now good to like minus 15. So I'm not going to bring the bag I need for the hunt. I'm going to bring the bag I need that will work with the extra gear I already have for the hunt. Like I already brought a puffy jacket and puffy pants because I knew I was going to be sitting outside glassing all day in the middle of winter. Might as well put those to use in your sleep system. But if we're constraining our comments to just the Kafaru slick bag, I can't recommend it enough. I've had mine for four years now. Super durable, super comfortable. I'm a side sleeper. The, the center zip kind of gets annoying a little bit every now and then, but overall, I like it. It's got a great hood where I stuff my pillow, my Sea to Summit inflatable pillow. It fits right in there, so I never have to worry about it sliding off the back of the sleeping pad. Um, can't recommend it enough. Loved it, and it worked perfectly. All right. I think what I'm going to do now is walk through all of the clothes that I brought. And then I'll talk about them as a system because I'm not sure it, it's really required to like do an individual review of each piece. It's just the noteworthy pieces. Plus, if you hear all the clothes I brought, then you'll understand how it all fit together. Okay. So I had the Sitka Kelvin Down Windstopper jacket. That's like their big bomber puffy jacket, like good to minus 20, things like a sleeping bag on wheels. Sitka didn't give me that one, but my buddy Jeff Lander, who owns Primitive Outfitting, lent that one to me. I'll get into the review in a minute. So Sitka, Kelvin Down, Windstopper, Jacket, Stone Glacier, Grooming Down Pants, Sitka, Jetstream, Beanie, Gloves, I had the Sitka Blizzard, GTX, and the Sitka Stormfront, GTX, and two additional pairs of liners, which I'll get into. It's not really clothing, but I brought the Mech Expedition booties. For rain gear, I had the Sitka Stormfront jacket and the Sitka Stormfront pants. I also had the Sitka Core lightweight hoodie. My long johns were the Arcteryx Modus AR. I brought the Sitka Kelvin active jacket I had, I had a ball cap, but I didn't even actually wear that once. I had a second toque. So I had the Jetstream beanie and I had a backup toque. One I wore during the day to hunt. One was dry at camp to wear at night while I slept. I wore darn tough over the calf socks and I brought Sitka gaiters and I had an arcade stretchy belt. So now let me talk about how this whole system works. I'm going to go from the bottom to the top and from the inside to the out. Might as well talk about my boots here. I'll get into the more detail, but it was a pair of La Sportiva Nepal GTX. So first we have over the calf socks. To me, that's a necessity in hunting boots. I hate socks that slide down into my hunting boots. So I always wear over the calf socks. Next, 
we went with the Arcteryx Modus AR Long Johns. The reason I went with these Long Johns is that they're kind of a mid-weight Long John. I needed something that would keep me warm when I was sitting still, but I wouldn't overheat in when I was moving, which is kind of like an impossible task to ask of a piece of gear, but that's what I was looking for. Um, and I feel like I found it in these. I was incredibly impressed um, with the quality of these. But anyways, let's talk about the whole system. Over-the-calf socks, then a pair of, of long johns, then a Sitka Core lightweight hoodie. So there's your next to skin layer. Socks, long johns, core lightweight hoodie. Next, on the bottom, you have rain pants. I did not take regular pants. I only took rain pants. Next on the top, after the base layer, you can then put the Kelvin Active Light jacket. Then you put the rain jacket. And then on top of your rain pants on the bottom, you have the Sitka gaiters. And then if you need to, on top of the rain jacket or underneath the rain jacket on the top, you put the Sitka hoodie. So that's the whole system in all of its elements. And now let's talk about kind of the performance of each. I mean, socks are socks, man. I like darn, I like darn tough, but to be honest with you, I think smart wool are probably built a little bit better. I do tend to blow holes in darn tough. And I think they actually have lifetime warranties, but I'm, I'm never organized enough to remember when I bought them and have receipts and shit. That being said, darn tough are really good. Buy them on Amazon, 30 bucks a pair over the calf. I brought two pairs of socks and I changed on day three. And to tell the truth, I didn't even need that second pair. I had initially thought I was going to be having more fires and I could dry things out so I could rotate my socks more often. Normally on backcountry hunts, I only ever bring one pair of socks. And if I want to, I will wash them in a creek or take them off in the middle of the day and let them air out a little bit. But I think it's one of those things that far too many people bring too many pairs of. Didn't need the second pair of socks. But the socks I brought worked very well, so no complaints. Then we had the long johns, which I've already discussed. Highly recommend them. They're super expensive. They're like a hundred bucks for a pair. But uh, I was really impressed at scent control, moisture wicking capabilities. Yeah, just overall, the fabric technology from a company like Arcteryx is insane. I mean, hunting companies are good, but like companies like Arcteryx and other mountaineering companies have been doing this shit for so much longer. You just really have to respect the kind of textiles that they're putting out onto the market. Super impressive. And let me say, it's going to sound here like I loved everything and everything worked out. There's a reason for that. I researched the shit out of every single piece of gear I took. I looked for people who'd worn it. I looked for people who'd gone on similar hunts. I looked for people with more experience than I had. And I asked them probably to the point where they were super annoyed with me. What did you take? What worked? What didn't? I evaluated everything before I made any purchases. So it was not like, and I, like I dropped a lot of money for this hunt on gear because I wasn't dropping money on the hunt itself. It wasn't guided. You know what I mean? Other than fuel and food, the hunt was a $20 tag. So you are going to notice that a lot of this gear worked, but
but not to be arrogant. It's because it was supposed to. I was very intentional about what I took. And maybe that's the bigger takeaway than any of the specific gear needs is like, take the time and research what you're going to need for your hunt and then use that stuff or recognize that there's a compromise and not everybody has unlimited budgets. So anyways, long johns worked great. Core lightweight hoodie. I find some of Sitka's sizings frustrating, but I recognize I'm not like a normal sized dude. So I'm not surprised that I find it difficult to find a perfect size. In some items, 2X is too big and in other items, XL is too small. And it's like, I fluctuate in between those. Lots of times the extra large tall fits really good. I will say with the core lightweight hoodie, it is a snug fit and it's not as stretchy as I thought it would be. It's a little bit too tight in the forearms. Now, all this being said, it was a comfortable piece of gear and it performed from a technical perspective incredibly well. I'm getting pretty nitpicky with the feedback here. I wore an extra large tall. In hindsight, I should have bought a 2X just to give myself a little bit extra room. By day two or three, when it was all stretched out, it fit nice and comfortably, um, but it would have been nice to have a bit of extra room. It was a little tighter through the forearms, which is standard in, they call it a shooter sleeve. It's standard in, in hunting gear. And I do have kind of beefy forearms. So I mean, you can insert joke here. Um, so I'm not really that surprised. At first feel, you think the garment is going to be uncomfortable. It has that slightly polyestery vibe to it. Like crunchy is the wrong word. I'm used to Merino base layers and they're like so soft and comfy. When you pick up a core lightweight hoodie, that is not the adjectives you would use to describe it. The counterintuitive part is that when you put it on and more importantly, once you start to sweat in it, it's actually incredibly comfortable. Um, I love the hood articulation and shaping on Sitka gear. I gotta be honest, first light hoods drive me insane. I don't know what sadistic individual is cutting the patterns for those hoods, but it's like, it's either I, I, I put a hat on and it's like pulling up on my shoulders or it's falling down over my, I don't know what it is. You wouldn't think it would be a complicated thing to do, but I find hoods on first light gear, especially their base layers, incredibly uncomfortable. Whereas the Sitka ones, they just fit better. They don't come down too far over your face. They stay back a little bit so you can still breathe. You can wear a ball cap on top and it doesn't pull your shirt up out of your waistband. Yeah, just, and plus they all come with those little ninja masks. If you've never worn a piece of Sitka gear that has the ninja mask, you don't know what I'm talking about, but it's literally like this extra piece of fabric on the hood that you can either leave behind your neck and you don't even notice is there, or you put your head through it when you put the hood on and it's like a ninja mask and it covers up everything but your eyes. It's the coolest thing. And it's one of those things where you see it on a piece of gear, you're like, how is this not on everyone else's hunting gear? Like, if I was a competitor, why are you not stealing this? Like, it's a eight cent piece of fabric and it's brilliant. But, and you'll see this is a bit of a theme with me and Sitka. I think they just do those little things just that much better 
than everybody else. They're not perfect, and there's some shit of theirs that I don't particularly like, but on a lot of pieces of gear, they just, they've really gone that extra mile. So core lightweight hoodie, love it. I think it's great. Pro tip, on a winter hunt, you're never gonna be walking around in just your base layer, okay? So I specifically bought the subalpine camo pattern. That's like their peas and carrots or the, the green and brown pattern that you wear for elk hunting. And I did this because in elk hunting season, I will likely only be wearing a base layer. So I don't need an alpine optifade camo base layer. So this way, not that I would buy two versions of something just for a different camo, but it's a way to stay more practical because now I can just wear that as my shirt during elk season and wear it as an undershirt during sheep and goat season. And it serves the same purpose and I don't need two different camos. So there's a little bit of a pro tip for you. Now, Kelvin Active Jacket on top next. I'm gonna keep track of all the gear that I use in 2021. Let's just say that right now, this is my favorite piece of clothing gear for 2021. It, I was, it was through a conversation with John Barklow. He told me that I should have this for this particular hunt, so I bought it. And no, Sitka didn't give me this particular gear. And it's weird. It's like, at first when I was reading about it, I, like, I didn't even know what it was. I'm like, is it a soft shell? Is it a puffy? It's essentially kind of like a soft shell but filled with insulation. And again, it's synthetic insulation. It's not very much, but it's like just enough that the jacket is just slightly puffy. Nowhere close to like what an actual puffy jacket is, but there's just a little bit of loft and its ability to keep you warm when wet is staggering. Super impressed. Um, when I was wet from the snow or wet from sweating, here's what really tells you this work. So I would be glassing. I would be down just in my base layer, maybe having a cup of coffee, trying to air out. I wouldn't be paying attention. All of a sudden, 20 minutes would go by and I would be freezing cold, like to the point where motor skills were starting to deteriorate and I would be shaking so bad. I'd be trying to put something on. And the only thing laying there would be this sopping wet Sitka Kelvin active jacket. And the moment I put that thing on, I would start to heat up. And it was soaking wet. I was soaking wet. A, that's the power of synthetic insulation. Um, and B, I just think it's it fills this really weird niche in your gear system that it's not quite a puffy jacket. It's not quite like a, like a heavy merino or like... Normally the function that is fulfilled by the Kelvin active jacket would be fulfilled by a fleece because you can get a fleece wet. It'll still perform. I don't particularly like fleeces. I've never, I don't find them comfortable next to skin. I don't find them particularly warm. Um, there are things that like look good on paper, but never really behave that well in the wild. And this Sitka Kelvin active jacket is just so much better than any other fleece that I've had. Um, it was, it was just, it was really impressive. Um, so highly recommend that piece of gear. Now let's talk about the rain gear. And I'm just going to talk about the system as a whole, the Sitka Stormfront system. Now, 
hold on to your hats. This shit is expensive as hell. The jacket is like 600 bucks US and the pants are like 550 US. So you're talking like $1,500 Canadian for, uh, for rain gear. Okay. So take everything I'm about to say with a grain of salt, because most people don't spend that on their rifle, let alone their rain gear. But, and I'm going to try as hard as I can not to be hyperbolic about this because I understand I'm, I'm a very like expressive communicator. The shit is amazing. I have probably worn 15 different types of rain gear from being a layout engineer on the coast for 15 years. I'm talking everything, man. And I wore this rain gear for a week straight, every day, hiking, sitting, glassing, eating, like everything I did except for sleep, I was wearing this rain gear. And I could not be more impressed. Like if you just want, now it's not light, okay? This is not your like, eh, maybe it's gonna rain. I'll bring my stormfront system with me sheep hunting kind of rain gear. This is like, I'm on the coast or I'm in Alaska or it's winter. Like I am going to be exposed to moisture and precipitation of some kind every single day. That's the situation you want this rain gear in. Um, it, it blew my mind. I don't know what else I can say about it. I mean, you get what you pay for with this stuff. It was phenomenal. Here's the thing that impressed me the most. It never absorbed water. And the reason you can tell that is all other rain gear that I've ever worn, you wear it for a day, maybe you stay so dry, maybe you don't stay so dry, but at the end of the day, you take it off and the actual garment will be heavier than when you put it on. Of course, because it's breathable, there is water vapor traveling back and forth through the jacket. The more often you wear it, the less vapor gets you know, successfully transmitted. Some of it gets locked inside and the jacket gets heavy because it's absorbed some water and you gotta let it set out overnight and dry out. I don't know what kind of alien shit they got going on over at Sitka, but this jacket never retained moisture. I and the pants, I would literally hike in them all day in like puking snow, sweating my bag off. And I would get back to camp and strip them off. And they felt like light, like they, they didn't feel like they were retaining any moisture. I would give them a shake to get the surface water off. And here's the other way, you know, they don't retain moisture. I would fold them up and put them in my cubby right beside my boots. I would wake up to frozen boots every morning because there's moisture inside the boots. Rain gear was not frozen at all. It didn't have frost on it. It didn't crinkle when I unfolded it. Like it just opened up like a normal piece of fabric. Um, you can go on there to, to, to find out. It's like a, a three layer, you know, pro Gore-Tex laminate. There's some technical details there. I think there's more stuff going on that they don't release because it's, it's like their proprietary rain gear system. Everybody's going to want to know if it performs as well as the Kuyu Yukon. I don't know. I've never worn the Kuyu Yukon, so I can't really compare. The Kuyu Yukon is definitely significantly cheaper. I don't know if that's because of their direct consumer model or if it's because there's really that much more kind of quality and technology gone into the Stormfront system. I don't know. 
What I do know that I feel very comfortable that if you are in a situation where you want the toughest rain gear money can buy and you've got a limitless budget, you will sleep soundly at night if you buy the Sitka Stormfront system. I was, I can't, I was trying to think on the way home of a harder test. Maybe like an Alaskan sheep hunt where you're in the rain all day, but like snow is even worse than rain because I was up to my knees in snow. So I'm like, like although I did have gaiters on, but the, but the snow is actually forcing with weight moisture into your garments, whereas rain tends to just shed right off. So I don't know. I feel confident that it is damn close to um, as brutal an environment as you could find to test rain gear. And it passed with flying colors. Now, the gators, I was a little bit skeptical on. This was one of the pieces that Sitka sent over. And so I wanted to try it simply because I'm an, I'm an outdoor research gator guy. The Crocs, I've worn them for 20 years. In my personal opinion, that is the perfect gator. Everyone else is just playing catch up to that gator, in my opinion. So knowing that, I was a little hesitant to take the Sitka gators. I will say, I I don't know if I feel comfortable saying their design is perfectly as the ORs. They're a little bit shorter than I would like personally. They have this kind of weird strap system on the bottom that I did get used to, but I had to play with it a few times. Um, it's interesting because it's almost like the, well, the straps are detachable. They're not hard wired on either side. And so the straps can, the bottom straps can kind of come out. The Velcro is nice and wide and firm. So the gaiters don't slide down your calves. That's my biggest complaint with cheap gaiters is that they just all bunch up down around your ankles. These stayed elevated the entire time. Another thing I don't quite like is that the attachment point of the strap underneath leaves about a half inch to an inch of fabric on the outside of the strap. This is a terrible de description, but, but essentially when you're in snow and you push down, there's room for snow to kind of get in there and wedge between your boot and the gator and kind of force that flap out on the side with other gators that have the strap sewn right to the edge of the gator that kind of opening doesn't exist. And I was looking at them and I think it's almost a bit of a design flaw because if you just had the strap, a little hole cut and sewn in the side and have the strap come out and over that fabric down at the bottom, this wouldn't be an issue. And it's also only probably an issue in winter. If you're in regular conditions, I don't even think you would notice, but that did kind of bug me a little bit. The buckle that the webbing goes through at the top by your knee, I found a bit finicky. I just think it needs to be nuanced a little bit. Now, all this being said, I think they are a top-notch gator. And if you're looking to wear gators that match your camo and are a very good quality, I think the Sitka gators are excellent. They're probably a little shorter. They're probably a little lighter. They're made with the same material because the Gore-Tex in, in Outdoor Research Gators is the same as the Gore-Tex in the Sitka Gators. 
There's a couple places where I feel the gators are a little bit more reinforced on the Sitka than the outdoor research. I think if you put a gun to my head and right now told me I can only have one pair of gators for the rest of my life, I'm probably buying the OR. However, I was pleasantly surprised at the performance and quality of the Sitka gators. So there's that. Final piece of kind of clothing is the Sitka um, Kelvin Down Windstopper. This thing is literally, like I said before, it's a sleeping bag on wheels, man. It's heavy. It's probably 27 or 28 ounces, but it is irreplaceable on a hunt like this. At no point did I get to a cold that I could not recover from by wearing this jacket for 15 minutes. Now, the interesting thing about this jacket is that the down is hybrid. It's, I don't know what the exact ratio is, maybe 50% synthetic, 50% down. Let's take a moment and talk about down to understand why this is important. When down gets wet, it compresses. And when down compresses, it no longer insulates because insulation is created by trapping pockets of air and filling a space with mini trapped pockets of air. And having all that air is what creates the insulation qualities within down. By infusing the down with some synthetic, even when it gets wet, the synthetic insulation provides the structure required to keep the down feathers separate, thereby still ensuring, although a reduced amount of insulation, still some insulation. So I could actually use this jacket in the same manner that I used my sleeping bag. So I would get to a glassing spot, I would be soaking wet, I would put this jacket on and I would start to dry out from the inside out and I would push moisture through the jacket. Now the jacket doesn't work quite as good as a sleeping bag and you would notice a slight reduction in performance in the jacket as more moisture was transmitted from your body through the jacket. However, if you just kept wearing the jacket, you would kind of dry from the inside out. So base layer would get dry, sick Kelvin active jacket would get dry and then you would dry out the actual big jacket. And even if you didn't get that far, even if the jacket was slightly moist, it still provided good insulation qualities. And this is something John Barklow kind of grinds on all the time is the power of synthetic insulation. I was a bit of a skeptic because I'm kind of an old school down guy. Now, after having taken... I've had my synthetic bag for a long time, but after having taken a few of these pieces of hybrid gear, I'm really quite, I'm, I'm a, I, you could say I'm a convert. I can see the need for these types of gear, especially in extremely adverse conditions. Okay, that rounds out the clothing. And looking at the time right now, and looking at the amount of gear that I have left, because I took a lot of detailed notes about like weird little gear pieces that I think are necessary for a hunt like this, I'm going to call it quits for now because I think there's easily another hour in here for me to talk about. So I will report, record that podcast for release next week. Um, in the meantime, if you have any questions or comments about the gear that I talked about this week, please feel free to contact me, email me, leave a comment on YouTube, Instagram, whatever you want to do. Happy to spend some time talking about it. Other than that, I look forward to talking to you guys again next week, and it's good to be back on a regular schedule. Thanks for tuning in.